Marhaba, and welcome to the Matrix Green Pill, where real people connect. Hello and welcome back to the Matrix Green Pill podcast. I'm Hilmarie Hutchison, and today I'm excited to have Lisa Lipkin as my special guest on the podcast. For over 25 years, Lisa has worked as a professional storyteller, writing and performing original works internationally, before founding Story Strategies, a consultancy that helps organizations and individuals find and tell their authentic stories. She has worked with some of the largest companies in the world, and her articles and stories have appeared in the New York Times Magazine and The New Yorker. She is the author of Bringing the Story Home, The Complete Guide to Storytelling for Parents, and the editor of five books of American poetry. Wow, so impressive. Lisa, welcome and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So let's just jump right in. Can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your background? I started like so many people back in the late 80s, early 90s, pre-internet days as an actress. And I was, you know, going to a million auditions and getting nowhere. It's a kind of a funny story. I ended up being a secretary with no air conditioning in August in somebody's office building in Soho. And I was so miserable, basically not getting any work as an actress. And I saw a magazine, Smithsonian Magazine, advertising a historic cruise down the Hudson River that summer. And I said, I I want to be on that. So just had a lot of chutzpah. I sent a letter and I said, I'm a colonial storyteller. Don't you want me to go on board to be your storyteller? And I'd actually never told a story in my life. And they wrote me back and they said, we want to hire you. But they said, we don't want you to come on the cruise with us. We're pulling into the harbor in New York. We want you to come on board, tell our customers stories and then get off. But we'll pay you $200. This is way back when I decided, all right. So I ran to a library and I got a book of New York folklore and legends. And it brought New York history to life in the most enchanting way. And I quickly memorized a bunch of stories and went on board and delivered them. (laughs) I did perfectly fine. Half of the people on board were drunk and they weren't listening anyway. But what happened was I became so entranced by stories and how they could transform New York history. I ended up becoming a professional storyteller and for many years, one that brought New York history to life. So it was really an accident that got me, like most things in life, into storytelling. What an incredible story about storytelling. That's remarkable. From the late 1990s into the early 2000s, you were the storyteller in residence uh, with a museum of the city of New York. How did you get into that? As I mentioned, through quite an accident, I discovered these beautiful folkloric stories that brought New York history to life. And I thought, you know, this is very special. And this could really help capture the city's fascinating, rich history. So I was at a number of museums before I got offered this position at this beautiful history museum on Fifth Avenue. And in addition to performing, they would get an exhibit. Um, Sometimes there wasn't much, like they'd get one artifact from the Dutch of New Amsterdam, a rock. And they'd say, can you do something with this rock? So really what I had to do was learn how to see the story in the mundane, how to sort of find the magic in the mundane and how to take any boring artifact or object and kind of give it a backstory and breathe life into it. So I told stories at the museum for groups that came in. And I also train teachers in how to teach history curriculum, injecting narratives and stories. And then I also got sent into some of the 
most roughest neighborhoods in New York into schools to bring storytelling to life. And that was quite an experience seeing the New York of the 1980s, which which isn't the same New York as today. Gunfire, crack vials. Um, I remember I was the museum sent me into a school in Jamaica, Queens, New York, about 30 minutes outside of Manhattan. And it was a really rough neighborhood. And in the middle of telling stories on the Revolutionary War, there was a fire drill. So the teacher said to me, I'm sorry, we have to go out on the street for the fire drill. But as soon as we're done, we'll come back. The whole class of sixth graders marched out onto the sidewalk. And we were standing in front of a residential house and a burglar flew out of the front door, followed by the cops. The cop tackled this man to the ground in front of the kids, handcuffed him, and he was lying in front of them. And one of the little six-year-olds said, hi, cousin Arnie, how are you? And he goes, how you doing, Letitia? It turns out they knew each other. We went back into the classroom and I thought, how am I going to possibly get these kids back into Revolutionary War stories when they've just seen. And the second I started telling that story, they were with me. And I realized, you know, that's the magic of stories. You can have your life and then you can be transported to somewhere else. And it, the two did not interfere with each other. In fact, I mean, I saw how stories in a way helped young people transcend their life experience. So it was, it was a really beautiful time. That is absolutely incredible. And as you say, by telling stories, you can bring history to life. It can be a horribly boring or you can make it absolutely so inspiring. And then you also decided to start writing. You were not only telling stories, you started to write stories. So what was that about? Yeah, well, I'll tell you what happened. For many years, I only told other people's stories. Um, Lisa, we're having a show on the Dutch. We're having a show on George Washington, our first president. I would have to prepare and perform stories about other people. But one day, the Museum of the City of New York said to me, we're doing a show on the Holocaust. It's about a young boy's journey. It's a traveling exhibit. Can you do something? And they had no idea that I was the child of a Holocaust survivor. And that for the last three years, I had been attending a group for children of survivors talking about our particular issues growing up in a house of, with a traumatic war survivor in it. And I said, yes, it was the first time I had ever written a personal story about my experiences growing up. You know, I call it dark silences, noisy silences. My mother never talked about it. I integrated a lot of the stories from that group as well. I was so scared I've never in my life been so frightened. It was as if I like spent my whole life kind of trying to tell other people's stories as a way of avoiding my own. Anyway, I finally got on the stage and I did it. And it was like by far the most poignant and successful piece I had ever done. And that show actually ended up leading to so many wonderful things. You know, I ended up touring in England and Europe and off Broadway. and But more importantly, what it taught me was that if you're connected to your own personal story, if you can find some way to connect deeply and personally to the story you're telling, even regardless of what the story is, that you will be much more effective. And that was sort of like the beginning of the rest of my career, that change right there. So once you started writing, did you ever get writer's block or did it all just come out automatically? I usually only have writers. People have this idea that writers just sit down and it, you know, and they write, but actually it's not that way at all. I mean, I also, you know, write articles for magazines and I do a lot of other kinds of writing and it's never easy. It's a discipline. I work well on deadlines because then I don't have a choice. And particularly if you're making a living at it. But yeah, I get stuck a lot. It's not a romantic, joyous experience. I think there's a famous writer, Dorothy Parker. Do you, are you aware of her? Somebody said to her, do you like writing? And she said, I like having written. 
And that's how I feel. You know, you love it when it's done, but it's excruciating while it's happening. Right. Once it's out on paper, it's there. You've accomplished it. What advice would you give to somebody who would like to become a writer? The only thing is when I started in my day, I mean, I have to confess, like to supplement my performance income, I was writing articles for magazines, as you mentioned, the New York Times, this and that. But in those days, pre-internet, you got paid. I mean, you really could make money at it. I remember getting early in early days, you could get thousands for an article. And by the time I'd say by five years after I started writing, they were not offering a penny because content was everywhere. It's a different way of earning a living now. Obviously, you know, the younger people are much more tapped into how to use use it as a way of supporting themselves. But aside from the money, I would say just sit down and write because there's no greater joy than expressing yourself through words and words transform and they can be very healing. Regardless of whether you're making money or not, I always recommend to just sit down and start writing whatever you want. And you can always worry about forming it into something marketable later. I think that's good advice. Yeah, let's get back on track where you ended up then. In 2008, you founded Story Strategies, a consultancy that helps international clients. Can you tell us about that? As I mentioned, I had this one woman show about being the child of a Holocaust survivor called What Mother Never Told Me. And um, a Dutch producer brought me to the Netherlands. I kind of fell in love with it there and eventually moved there. I mean, I won't bore you with the lengthy story of how that happened, but I moved to Amsterdam. I currently have a residence there. I felt like, first of all, there were a lot of international companies there that worked in English. I didn't really want to jump around on a stage anymore. By then I had been doing it for so many years and I kind of wanted to do something different. And I decided that I would apply my skills as both a writer and a performer and what I knew about storytelling to the corporate world. And so I thought organizations, you know, have to deliver all sorts of information, whether it be the most, you know, laborious data. If you're an R&D and you're a scientist and you need to somehow convince marketing of your product that you're developing, you need help telling a story with it. Sometimes you don't even know where your story lies. I kind of now go into international companies. Often many of them are based in The Hague, for example. One of my clients was Saudi Aramco, the uh, the, uh, Saudi Arabian um, national oil company. They have a lot of oil and gas engineers who still need to be able to communicate what they're up to with various members of their team. And believe it or not, we would find the compelling, emotionally meaningful story in oil and gas engineering. (laughs) So that's the kind of thing I do now. I help companies and organizations. You mentioned helping them to use the power of storytelling for recruitment, to enhance employee engagement. Can you give us some examples of exactly how does that work? Basically, in in the end, it all boils down to this. Finding what is emotionally meaningful in whatever material you're delivering, regardless of whether it's recruitment, whether it's HR, whether it's marketing, it's all the same. The biggest mistake that my clients make is they always ask, what is the most important information I need to deliver to my audience? They start with that. What are the facts and that we need to deliver. Then they say, who is our audience? Now, those are all valid questions, but it's not the question I start with. I always make them, regardless of what department they're in, because it's all the same. I say, what moves you emotionally about the material you're delivering. And it doesn't have to be that you're touched deeply. It could be that you're scared by it or that it makes you laugh. You could have to be delivering a piece of information that reminds you of something from your childhood. The idea, though, is based on neuroscience. I'm a scientist's daughter, so I love this stuff. And it turns out that if you can activate the emotional regions in your own brain, for example, your amygdala, then at the exact moment that you're activating your emotional regions in your brain, the same regions 
in the listeners, in your audience members are activating at the same time. There's a phenomenon called neural coupling identified by some researchers that actually has measured what is happening in the audience's brain when you are telling an emotionally meaningful story. What's happening is you're literally kind of taking over your audience's brain. You're lighting up their emotional regions at the same time yours are. And why is that important? Because in order for you to remember something and in order for you to, as they say, lean in and care, you have to engage the emotional regions of the brain. Really, it's a technique and a strategy. If the people I work with in organizations can figure out any way of activating their emotions when they first start delivering and then hanging those facts on the emotions, they'll be much better off. I don't know if you have time for me to give you a short example. I would love. Yes, absolutely. I'd love if you could. So my very first Dutch client was a guy from a company called Amsterdam Molecular Technologies, which was a gene therapy company. Years ago, gene therapy did not have a good reputation and he was having trouble getting investors, even though he was at stage three human testing already. It was very far along. And his particular gene therapy worked on a number of orphan diseases and on Parkinson's. He didn't understand why he wasn't courting investors. I said, what do you say to them? He said, I come out and I say, my name is Jorn Alduk. I'm the CEO of AMT. And he said, and I'm here to transform this company. And here's why. And then he would show like um, his 20 slides, compelling slides about the profitability and so forth and the efficacy of this drug. And it wasn't working. And so I knew I had to figure out what was emotionally moving in order to get it to work. So I kept asking him questions and then I hit on something. I said, did you sit in on any of the human trials? And he said, I did. And I said, did any of them move you? And his face just changed. You know, he said, yeah, there was a young guy, 35, just like me, also German like me. He had severe Parkinson's to the point where his hand was banging on my table. He couldn't stop the tremors. He said, I looked at this guy and I thought, but for the grace of God, that could have been me. And he was so visibly shaken that we went back and we changed the opening of his talk. And he now comes out and he says, my name is Jaron Alduk. I'm the CEO of AMT. When I first came to this company, I thought I would transform it. I never could have imagined how it would have transformed me. And the entire talk was around his transformation. And we still included every bit of his data. But what happened was we allowed people to follow his story. And sure enough, they got the money. It wasn't because of his data. It was because people would corner him after a talk and say, you know, my uncle has Parkinson's. My son is sick too. So that's sort of the basic strategy. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So you have to find that one thing that's going to have that emotional connection. Yeah, you want to hang facts on emotions, not the other way around. In PR, we call that finding a hook, finding that one thing. Yeah. Well, you know it very well. I mean, you're in the same field and we all know this in, in our field, but it's often forgotten in the field of science and technology. I agree with you. I mean, with many companies, when you think about the product, you think, well, that's boring, right? I mean, how do you make a story out of that? And that's to find that one thing. What is your process like with clients or with companies to identify that one thing? This comes from my early days working with kids at the museum and in schools is I would go into a lot of neighborhoods, which were really dangerous, like working with sexually abused kids. And I couldn't ask them direct questions. It was too dangerous. So I learned to use indirect storytelling prompts, which were less threatening. Like I remember my first job working with sexually abused kids in the Bronx. And I just said to them, tell me where you 
like to play and any story surrounding that. Because I learned from a colleague, a folklorist friend of mine, that play is always joyous, even in the worst circumstances. You know, you hear Holocaust survivors talking about the games they played at Auschwitz. Indirect storytelling prompts like where did you play and a memorable event, um, inanimate objects, tell me about your watch, tell me about your ring. And believe it or not, through anything but a direct question, you can extract a lot of amazing information. Just to give you a small example, I was working with a team in the Netherlands. It was a chemical company. It was basically, they were trying to do a storytelling workshop. So I asked this one guy, I said, what do you bring to your team? And he goes, I'm a team player. I'm a team player. He kept saying it so many times that I didn't believe it, but I knew he believed it because people aren't often aware of their own, who they are at heart. So then I employed one of my techniques. I said, tell me where you played as a child and one memorable event that happened there. He said, well, I grew up in Australia and I used to play with a boomerang. And one day I hit a bird and I killed it and it died. And my father told me I could use that boomerang again. I said to him, and did you listen to him? And he said, no. And I said, and by any chance, are you that naughty in the workplace now? He said, yes. And then it emerged that actually it's when he wasn't being a team player, when he went out on his own, that his best innovations came to the team. In other words, he himself wasn't aware of what a renegade he was until he recalled that personal story. So you can often use indirect storytelling prompts to get a kind of more honest, emotionally meaningful memory. So interesting. I love the science behind it you mentioned earlier. It's incredible. I don't like to admit it, but I'm a kind of closet science geek because every member of my family is a scientist. I even have an uncle, by the way, whose license plate on his car said E does not equal M squared. I mean, this is how key my family is. He didn't believe in Einstein's theory. So there's never been a direct study, but there are some fascinating studies to suggest why when you're not asking a direct question, you can have a much better result. I mean, they studied jazz musicians. They wired up their brains to jazz jazz pianists to see what was happening. Every jazz musician has like an improv part and a scripted part. And they found that during the scripted part, there's a region of the brain that kind of clamps down it. It's for expectation and group regulation. But the minute they got into the improv part, those areas released. And I think that's sort of what's happening in storytelling. When you ask somebody a direct question, there's an expectation that the brain automatically is kind of its default mode is to behave in a group setting. It's sort of designed for survival to toe the line in a group setting. If you take away that direct questioning and you trick the brain into not realizing you're extracting information, you can get a whole lot of stuff. The key in my job is to interpret metaphor. You have to be able to interpret the meaning of the stories that they share. That's the difficult part. Almost like when you ask the direct question, there has to be a right or a wrong answer. So the pressure is there to get this right or you'd be wrong. Whereas the indirect way, as you say, there's no pressure. So there's not that expectation that it's got to be right or it's going to be in a particular way. We kind of know the reason for this. We know that we're hardwired for storytelling. Before we had literacy, you know, we use stories to communicate. And our brains developed so many hundreds of thousands of years ago at a time when, you know, you had to, there were certain things that were necessary for survival. I think a lot of these techniques, whether I'm aware of it or not, hearkening back to earlier brain development when stories were what worked. You know, you wanted to teach somebody to survive. You told them a story about, what happens when you play with fire or try to go near a tiger. So stories work. Some of the later techniques don't because in many ways, our brains are still evolving, but they're really still quite primitive in a certain sense. So that's kind of what it's based on. Now, you've had a lot of very interesting and varied experiences. Can you tell us one of your proudest moments during your journey so far? 
I was asked to do my one woman show about being the child of a Holocaust survivor at the U.S. State Department. Why is that meaningful? Because the State Department, this is a long time ago during Colin Powell's days. So it was a long time ago. I was the first person that was ever invited. So for me, it was really beautiful experience to be that person, to be the first one. That kind of comes to mind. But there's also little moments of epiphanies that when nobody's in the room and you're with a child and you see, you know, how they're transformed by sharing a story. I have a friend who's no longer alive. He said, Lipkin, he said, your days are stitched together of endless epiphanies. And that's really the truth. The truth is that I'm in this room, which seems so corporate and so staid. And, you know, you're with a bunch of execs or people doing seemingly boring work, but they end up sharing these deeply personal little anecdotes that are so meaningful, both to the group and to them. These are moments that will never be captured. They'll maybe be referenced briefly in some talk and be forgotten. But for that moment, it's really very meaningful to me. I feel like probably those small moments that never get captured and never get documented are maybe the things I'm proudest of. You've done a lot, as we've already spoken about. Do you have any plans for the future? Any future goals you can tell us about? Yeah, it's something I'm really thinking about. Of course, with the pandemic, you start reevaluating. So I think I I might want to move away from the corporate world and try to do the stuff that really has meaning for me. I've actually been thinking about the U.S., as you know, we're so polarized now and divisive. And I think I would love to take existing curricula, sort of the stuff I was doing early on at the museum, but I feel like for every story that's told, there's three or four opposing stories you never hear. It would be wonderful to introduce, you know, just to take existing curricula and expand it to show, say you're talking about the Dutch of New Amsterdam, as I mentioned before. You can show the person standing behind that rock whose story you never hear, the person who has a a different opinion on the other side of that windmill that has another opinion, to sort of introduce young people to multiple points of view, not necessarily reinventing the wheel, but just broadening or expanding existing curricula to introduce them to critical thinking skills through storytelling. I think that's something that's really been on my mind a lot. And I'm doing a lot more story coaching now, one-on-one, which I really enjoy. So I think those are things I'm thinking of expanding upon. And then I always dreamed of having like a hot dog stand, but I'm not going to do that. It sounds really interesting to have uh, different sides of the story and having different viewpoints told. I love that. We don't hear multiple points of view anymore. I mean, we need to really respect and genuinely listen to other people's point of view to start with the premise that they're good people who have different ideas. And I think you have to start early on. You have to start early on with young kids, letting them understand that every point of view they're hearing has a counterpoint of view. That's a very valuable understanding to have, that there's always two sides to every coin. Now we've come to the segment of our show where I will ask you a few rapid fire questions. So our version of a game show. So who's your favorite author? Vladimir Nabokov. Do you have a favorite poem? Oh, wow. I probably do, but I can't bring it to mind right now. I love Dorothy Parker as a poetess. I love so many poet poems. I would say Dorothy Parker is my favorite writer and a poetess. Can you give a short narrative to describe you? Okay. She was an unseller. She never knew how to sell herself properly, but she was filled with feistiness and interesting ideas and a lot of compassion. Oh, I love that. Very nice. And what is one thing you do every day, no matter how busy you are? I have a 
super strong espresso in the morning. I walk over to Dunkin' Donuts. It's a ritual. Even though I have a coffee machine, I love the guy that's behind the counter there, Alfred. He's just fabulous. And he makes me a double espresso with a little whipped cream in it. And we talk for a few minutes until the manager comes over and yells at him because he's wasting time. And then I come back and I get on with my day. Very good. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for playing along. That was easy enough. So before we wrap up, we'd like to do our green pull moment. So for this segment, I'd like to ask you, what green pull advice would you give to your younger self? I think to trust that I'm smart enough, that I have really great ideas, and that also that nothing comes easy and that it's okay to struggle and work for something. But I think self-confidence and self-belief is something I wish I'd had more of because I know I have something to offer and I didn't at the time. It took a long time to learn that. But I think the younger women today are starting off in a much better place. So I'd say self-belief is the most important thing. Excellent. I love that. That's very good advice. Well, thank you so much for sharing your fantastic and inspiring story with us today. I know I'm going to remember some of those stories for sure. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. It was. I really enjoyed this conversation. Now, before we say goodbye, could you please tell our listeners where they can find and follow you? And we'll also put this in the show notes. Sure. I mean, as I said, I'm a terrible seller, but a storystrategies.net. I'm on LinkedIn as well under Lisa Lipkin, Story Strategies. Thank you very much. We'll put all those in the show notes and we wish you all the very best. We'll be watching and seeing where you go next for sure. Thank you so much and all the best to you too. If you enjoy our conversations, please like and subscribe. See you next Wednesday.